0: The Telegraph.
2: the Telegraph. Podcasts.
1: Hi there, podcast fans. I'm Tom Gibbs. Welcome to Telegraph Audio Football Club. We're back with you with another episode of the best and worst game, or the very best of football. We still have a formal title. The four categories we've got up for discussion today are matches seen in person, friendly games, documentaries, and for a bit of fun, haircuts. We've asked our panel to nominate their best or worst of each of those. Let's hear from them right now. Let's take you now into a series of remote audio recording facilities where I'm joined by JJ Bull. Hello, JJ. How are you?
3: I'm good, Tom. Good to be included because obviously I'm not on the artwork for the podcast. But oh, come nice on, to JJ. Welcome in on. such a delightful fashion.
1: Limited space on the new artwork. Maybe we'll have like a rotating third slot, like the plinth in Trafalgar Square.
3: That's fine. If you've seen the artwork on Twitter, at Tom Gibbs and ask where JJ Bull is.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. Someone else who is on that artwork, it's Mina Rizuki. What's happening, Mina?
0: Well, I feel very flattered that I am on the on the artwork, but yeah, you've made it. I know, Tom. I just feel like you know, I'm. I, it made my week go by that much easier, but yeah. Excellent. Otherwise, I'm okay.
1: Excellent, Matt Law. What's what are your views on the new AFC artwork?
2: I've got lots of problems with the, uh, the artwork. <laughs> I, I'll accept that maybe my image shouldn't be on it, and it's probably best for all that it's not. But what's the pitch? It's not a football pitch. It's, um, you know, it's a
1: loose approximation of uh, of something. Poor. Poor. (laughs) Let's start by talking about a very big and important topic, which is the best match we've ever seen in person. And we'll start with you, Matt. What is your nomination for this category? So I
2: would like to make it clear that this isn't because I've seen better quality football and I've seen... Um, more sort of exciting football. But in terms of, um, I don't know, just mad, pure madness and just being left with a sense of I can't believe what I've seen, I covered the 2007 Carling Cup final at Millennium Stadium between Arsenal and Chelsea, the snarling cup final, um, because of all the fighting that took place. And... It's always stuck with me. All the astonishment pretty much happened right at the end in stoppage time when everything just kicked off. I mean, I'll just try and briefly give a a summary of what happened. So Theo Walcott puts Arsenal ahead with a a really good goal and he took Chelsea apart that day. Um, In terms of the match, Chelsea come back and win. Drogba scores one, equalises. Then at one all, Diaby kicks Terry in the head by accident. Drogba... Scores again to put, to put Chelsea ahead. The seven minutes added on. Um, Toure and Mikel go in for quite a spiky challenge. And then just the biggest brawl kicks off. I mean, Fabregas and Lampard have a massive fight and somehow they get away with yellow cards. And what I would say as well is Terry made a remarkably remarkable recovery from being knocked out and swallowing his tongue to joining in with the celebrations afterwards. Well, he he knows how to celebrate, doesn't he, John Terry? Mm. There's something uh, incredibly transgressive
1: about seeing managers come onto a pitch, I think. Whenever that happens in that fight, it was like, oh, all right, something very serious has happened here. At this point, it meant a lot to both these teams. It wasn't like we're in, at the moment, this tedious run of Manchester City, winning it year after year. Uh, JJ, what have you got for your best game you've ever seen in person?
3: Uh, well I've hardly seen any good games in person because as you know I've gone to see Aberdeen watch uh, Aberdeen play all the time and never get to go to Premier League games because it costs <laughs> too much. But uh, the best one I've seen was I went to see Ajax play in, in in 2017 and they beat Rhoda JC who were bottom of the league at the time 5-1. And the football was it was great. Like, the, not cuz the game especially was um a thriller or anything like that but the whole experience was so much more fun than it has been watching a, Football in other places, like one of the best things is that you can sit and watch. Well, Justin Clivert, Patrick's son, scored the best hat trick uh, I've ever seen, especially in in real life. You can see it on a, on on YouTube if you want to find it. But um, the you can sit in the stand with a beer and just <laughs> relax and enjoy it and watch. And there's a whole uh, section behind the goal where everyone makes noise, and there's the atmosphere comes from that. Even against the team bottom of the league, the sound of football was. Like, excellent. It was that really good in M- Ajax team with some of the boys breaking through, like Frankie De Jong and uh, Donny van de Beek, and Casper uh, Dahlberg scored as well. This was twenty
1: seventeen, wasn't it? So it was it was yeah. a year ahead of when they kind of entered the uh, the wider consciousness.
3: Exactly. It was when all these wonder kids were just breaking through. So like Matisse de Ligt was in the team, and uh, it's all these guys that I really wanted to see play because I knew them mostly off Football Manager, because i would read a lot about them, and I, so being able to see them live is really exciting because you can tell with a lot of them they were going to be superstars this has been the, from the very first touch you can tell with some of them
1: yeah definitely going to look at that on youtube later might also watch it with a pint as you did JJ that definitely improves any sporting experience what have you got Mina
0: <sighs> okay I'm going to take you back to 2016 when Leicester City won the Premier League and it was a game that I watched and you remember last week I was telling you guys that I always tend to prefer the games in which I'm just there as a fan and not there on a journalist capacity. Um, well, it was a game between Spurs and Chelsea at Stamford Bridge.
2: Uh, and... I was at that game as well.
0: <laughs> it was the 2-2. And basically, Chelsea had had this horrible season. They finished in 10th. They attacked Mourinho. because hitting had come in. It was just all a bit of a disaster, to be honest. Um, as it does as it happens when, you know, Mourinho is sacked or there's, you know, those moments where he's come to the end of his cycle. And they took on Spurs. And it and Hazard and Fabregas, you know, said that they were determined, they were going to do everything in their power to not let Spurs win. Spurs needed to win their last three games um, to have a hope of claiming their first title since 1961. And obviously everyone wanted Leicester to win it. So they needed Chelsea to play their part as well. And, oh my God, did they did they do it? It was really strange because the match had started so well. Harry Kane rounded the goalkeeper, got in a goal. Then, then Son came in and doubled it. And you thought, "Oh, okay, you know, like Chelsea have been so poor this season, you can totally see how it's going to go that way." Um, and then all of a sudden, the game starts getting really touchy. You know, Spurs start acting all Spursy, and and then you start seeing all these fights breaking out. William and Danny Rose, um, the managers not knowing how to contain everything. Pochettino just looks like. He, he he's so upset at this point but wants them to win And but at the same time he's trying to calm them down so they can actually win. Um, it looks like at the time Musa Dembele was trying to eye gouge. Um, I think it was Diego Costa. And it was just, the, the atmosphere was so thick and, and, and full of tension but it was so fun where we were sitting because so many people were desperate for Chelsea to win for, for the sake of Leicester City and when it happened, Harry Kane just looked like he was just look like he reached the World Cup final and was denied to the final trophy and he was like, look at all the Chelsea players you know, celebrating like they had just won the league. And it was they were so happy with themselves. The crowd was going insane. Everyone around us was like, Come on, let's the city, come on, run, really. And so it was a really fun match to go to in live. It's not it's certainly not the best match I've ever watched, but it's, it's like Matt was saying, you know, you like things that's full of, like, sort of bad tension, like, it looks like the, the fight is going to break out any second, and those are the matches we love, right?
1: I've got to say, different sort of game for this, uh, which wasn't bad tempered, but was very exciting, and, and like JJ, uh, I've grown up watching QPR, so not that much in the way of Big games that everyone will remember, but uh, I thought about this from the perspective of what game would people wish they'd been at themselves, and the one that came to mind was um, Palace Three, Liverpool Three, the Kristan Ball game, when Liverpool uh, blew the league basically at Selhurst Park, and it was it was just one of those evenings where you were absolutely, you felt like you were watching a bit of history. The Liverpool fans, I was uh, sat close to Liverpool fans in the Palace end, and. There was such, uh, despite the fact that they probably knew they'd, they'd blown it away, uh, a home to Chelsea already. Uh, they were still quite buoyant and excited and they were obviously, you know, full of joy at going ahead. Uh, and then as it started to turn, um, it, it was just magnificent. And, uh, you know, no no shade at Liverpool fans, but it was magnificent seeing the change of emotion happening so close to us. Uh, and also the Palace fans getting noisier and noisier. Um a memorable evening, and so has Park um, a great place to watch football when it's noisy. do we think overall being at a game live is still the best way to experience football?
3: sometimes like sometimes I really like watching the the really massive games when you're at home if you've got some people around or in a pub's really great and I like I like being at home sometimes to watch it because you can just uh, like relax and go to the bathroom whenever you want, for example, but in a pub sometimes you get really good atmosphere Where everyone's watching the same thing. Uh, But then you can't really replace, like, one of the games I was going to choose for this was uh, Aberdeen beat Rangers 2-1, I think it was in 2005. And uh, all I remember about the game, I don't remember anything apart from Jamie Smith scoring this 25-yard, like, last-minute winner. might not even be the last minute, it just seems like that to me, because these little things stand out, and being in the stadium for that was amazing. But then you get the build-up that you go to the pub first, and you go with your pals, and you go get your seat, and you get your pie, and you stand and watch it, and that's part of the whole experience of it. But I think there's, I think you can enjoy it in a lot of different ways. Maybe it's because I don't go to the games as often as some fortunate people who do.
0: I, I remember watching, like, Champions League final, and everyone would keep getting up and going crazy, and I'm all, like, five foot three, and I just didn't get to see most of it, you know? And I'm just like, sit down, I can't see, and I'm just screaming, and... Yeah, I I don't get to really concentrate on what's going on because I just feel like sometimes the atmosphere is so thick and and heavy and everyone is so, like, you know, happy or whatever it is. And I don't get to really watch the stuff that I enjoy watching. So I prefer it on TV or better when I'm with a bunch of people and we're all watching it.
1: Yeah, I suppose that's kind of the best of both worlds. I saw this described really well by someone recently. I can't remember who it was, but I I find watching QPR on TV really difficult and much more stressful than being there in person. Yeah, 100% with said, yeah. yeah, someone said it's because on TV it's all shot to make it all seem as dramatic as possible. So you've got these dramatic close-ups of players and it's all swooshing <laughs> around and making it seem, you know, like an action film. Whereas when you're there in person, it's more mortal mm. and you see, like, mm. oh, actually, it's just, you know, it's just 11 blokes, like, running around in a silly way, uh, uh, you know, trying to do this silly thing. And, and it makes it less stressful, but... Yeah, there's something almost comforting to me
2: about watching football in person that uh, I
1: don't care at all watching it on telly.
2: What I hate about watching Villa on the TV, I mean, I find it so stressful and I don't want to see them a million replays of them being rubbish. I know they're generally rubbish <laughs> and I can go to a match and I'll be annoyed for a split second or so when they do something rubbish and then the play continues. When you watch it on TV and you get replay after replay of like the left back being awful or Neil Taylor doing something ridiculous and it just winds me up so much. And that's related to another point I've made about uh, TV on football in the past is that I do not understand people who can watch match of the day when their team is lost. The, the season Villa went down from the Premier League, I probably didn't watch match of the day the whole season.
3: What? Well, I don't get that I, at all. I, I like cannot to see watch, what happens. No,
2: no, I've got, I've got no interest in watching us get tonked again. Absolutely none. I, don't I wonder get if it's it a big whatsoever. club, small
0: club thing. Like I like watching my team on, on the big screen because I feel like they look like heroes, whereas when I go and see them live, they just look like 11 men. And I'm like, oh, this is a bit disappointing. We're paying so much money for this. You know?
3: Yeah, I've seen Aberdeen, yeah. it was like 9-0 and then going home to watch Highlights. Oh. <laughs>
0: Oh, I, think that would be I think that's called masochistic, it. isn't it? Yeah, yeah masochistic. You're, in you're an odd fish,
3: JJ. <laughs> yeah.
1: Let's keep it on Aberdeen uh, and ask you, JJ, uh, about the next category, which is friendly matches. What is the best friendly ever?
3: So my nomination for the uh, best friendly I ever saw was back in, it was 1999, was it 98?
1: It was 1999, I looked it up.
3: It was 99, then uh, it was just after the World Cup, anyway, because Aberdeen played Coventry, so Coventry came to Pataudry, and uh, this is just after, or a year after, the World Cup 98, when Mustafa Haji was one of the best players at the tournament, remember him? Yeah, from he Morocco. He was so good, he played for Morocco, he was amazing, all, all these tricks, and it was a big deal that a star like Haji was coming to Pataudry to play, even though <laughs> it's just Coventry, right? So um, anyway, I go to the Pataudry with my dad. And I, I'm sure Joel will have the censor the button ready for the end of this little story. But we will go to Patodry, which is Aberdeen Stadium, with my dad. And we're sat in the family stand. Lovely day. The players are out on the pitch having a little warm-up. And then at the front of the stand, in, ahead of me, is this big, fat guy, massive guy, and his sidekick. look like a kind of lorem Hardy pair. Uh, obviously, they're just for a bit of a nuisance, I suspect, now in my later years, that they'd been at the pub beforehand. And then they're just uh, watching the, the warm-up, having a bit of a laugh with each other. And you see Mustafa Hadjid and up like really fancy ones, like catching it on his neck in the middle of the pitch. And they're going, Mustafa! 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 They're ages and ages and ages and ages. And he's doing his tricks, doing his tricks. And they're, they're really keen, really keen. Mustafa! And he looks up. He looks all excited and happy. And he's like, oh, OK. So he comes bounding over and he gets over. And they're waiting for him. And he starts climbing over the, the border. Just as he's halfway across, they just look at him and go, F- <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, he's sort of stuck one leg over, the other leg stuck in their side of it, has to retreat, sort of like he's been caught with his pants down. It was one of the funniest things I've ever seen in a football stadium. So I don't remember anything about the game at all, but uh, yeah, I remember that friendly because of that one little bit.
1: JJ you said you saw Man United and Liverpool was it a big deal to be hosting Coventry City in in 1999 for Aberdeen was it exciting to see a Premier League team or or was this a quainter time when uh, it it was just expected
3: Uh, it's kind of hard to put into context because the Premier League had become this massive thing so everyone in Aberdeen basically supports Man United because Alex Ferguson used to support Aberdeen and conveniently Man United won everything at the time so the Premier League was always the huge thing, always on the TV. You'd often find that pubs would show uh, Premier League games rather than Scottish Premier League games that would have been at the time, Premiership now. Uh, so when any Premier League team came to town, it almost felt to me as though the real football team was in town. You know, that's the, right. the actual real sport had turned up rather than what we were doing, which was some nonsense thing. And you have to remember, that in, I think it was 95 or six Aberdeen's biggest transfer was Paul Bernard for 1 million. And you had boys up, Earning that every single month, who were turning up to play for, uh, for teams that were in friendlies like that. Man United was a it was a great one when they came because you got to see all these good players. I remember when Gerrard was playing for Liverpool, so seeing Steven Gerrard on the pitch was really cool. Lovely business. What about you, Mina? What have you got?
0: I struggled with this question largely because I'm not really a fan of friendlies and tend to not really watch them. So I was trying to think of one and then I just thought of the ICC because that's the best friendly tournament. Of
1: course, of course the ICC.
0: <laughs> and then I was like, OK, I really still don't remember many games. And then obviously I remembered um, the Magic over the summer in which Atletico Madrid thrashed Real 3, well, 7-3 basically. And it was probably the best friendly that I watched in a while because... The consequences were shocking. It was also the worst friendly I'd watched in a while because it just looked like one team was so unprepared. The fallout was almost overly dramatic. Like, people... I, I, I just wanted to turn around and be like, guys, this is still just a friendly. Like, you can't actually, like... Think that this is going to have huge repercussions on their season going forward. People tend to take sometimes friendlies like way more seriously than they should, and they'll be like, Oh, look at them, they were amazing, or, or how bad they are. And you're like, Yeah, but maybe they don't care, you know. Um, this match was particularly good because of the fact that you had all the tension, and you know, I love a good fight. <laughs> You've got like Danny Cadvahan and Diego Costa going at it, getting red cards. Um, you could see like everyone was really upset on the Real Madrid side. Everyone was looking to Zinedine Zidane because they were like, "Okay, you've come back now, and you have to start proving yourself because your your win rate has gone down." Even though the guy had won like the Champions League basically um, for for three years in a row, but and then you had this Atletico Madrid side that had lost Diego Godin, Antoine Griezmann. Luis Felipe, and, you know, so much more. And they had spent all this money on Jao Felix, who actually ended up scoring. And they went, like, 5-0 up in the first 50 minutes. And you are like, oh, my God, they're amazing. Like, for a side that had such a huge change, that had, like, a mini-revolution that is supposed to be, you know, entirely different with a, a different setup going forward, a different backline, no supposed leaders because they'd lost the likes of Godin and, and and Griezmann and stuff. They were fantastic to watch. Meanwhile, Real Madrid still looked like a side that was missing Cristiano Ronaldo. And you were like, oh my God, you this is, you know, Jao Felix is truly the kid. And then obviously, as you could see going forward, that it didn't really have any bearing over the season. And this is why a friendly is just a friendly. Yes, but
1: so good to get a mention for the ICC. It's been at least,
0: <laughs> at least three so. months. Since I
1: thought so. I wanted
0: yeah. to bring it back into our, you yeah. Know. <laughs>
1: absolute afc classic look i think i think you're both getting this all wrong because clearly where it's at with friendlies is international friendlies which are which are the the purest of the form you know what where's the fun unless you can substitute uh you know 11 players at half time so my suggestion is england 3 argentina 2 in 2005 which was held in switzerland for some reason argentina took the lead twice but then england roared back with Michael Owen, two very late goals from him at the end. Uh, it completely transcended its status as a friendly, this game. It felt like as it went on, it became more and more exciting. And then by the end, everyone's celebrating as if it's the World Cup final. Uh, I remember and this, it was just yeah. yeah, it was I don't kind of in the waning days of the... Oh, it was it was great. Uh, it was in the waning days of the golden generation when it would give you glimpses occasionally of being amazing and like something wonderful might happen. And Rooney scored, uh, took his goal really well for the first equaliser. Um, but the other one I was thinking about for this category was um, a, a game that took place before Euro 96, Uh, In which the eventual runners-up of the tournament, the Czech Republic, with Patrick Berger, um, Pavel Nedved, uh, Karol Poborski, great Czech team. uh, They played Bamber Bridge in a a warm-up friendly (laughs) for that tournament. uh, And beat them comfortably. I think it was 9-0. And there are highlights of uh, the whole thing. Very extended highlights on YouTube, which is a great way to spend an afternoon in isolation. Uh, I believe you've gone for your worst
2: friendly ever, Matt. I have, just before I start, I I was surprised you didn't go for, do you remember that um, QPR training game against the China Olympic team?
1: (laughs) Yeah, well that was behind closed doors, so (laughs) So it doesn't count. Tough one to nominate, but uh, yeah, that goes in the category
2: of things that could only happen to QPR. Incredible, incredible. Um, But no, that's not mine either, I just thought you'd go for that. So I struggled with this for all the same reasons as Mina, apart from the fact I don't like the ICC either. So (laughs) I was struggling with this subject. So I've gone for a very kind of personal uh, reason. So last summer, um, my son last summer, well, he's still four now. He'd just turned four last summer and he'd already been to a couple of Villa home games with me, far too young, I know. Um, And I was getting very excited about the fact that Villa had got promoted and there's a real good feeling around the club and I spotted, they were playing a friendly last, I don't know, it must have been last June, uh, probably July actually, last July, at, um, at Charlton. And I thought, that's not too, too bad for me to get to. Um, but my only way of getting that past my wife was to take some childcare with me. So I offered it out to both my kids and I couldn't get my little girl to come for love nor money, but Ozzy was, uh, was very interested in coming. So it was his first away day with me. So it was all good fun, and I, I can't stand a very popular American fast food chain, but even at the age of four, he sees it as the biggest treat ever. So I took him, took him to that first to try and butter him up a little bit and make him think it was going to be the best day of his life. And then, uh, and then we got to the Valley. Now, I haven't been to the Valley for years, and I've only ever been in the press section, which is quite nice. I've never been in the away end. I was quite shocked when we got there. The away end is like something still out of the sort of nineteen eighties. <laughs> um, it's got it's got basically just two toilets um, in the away end. I'm sure that's probably not legal. Um, and it was packed out. Villa took about four thousand fans, filled the away end, um, and it was packed out. Everyone is a nice sunny day. Everyone boozing outside and everything. And I kind of went in thinking, ah, this this toilet situation is not good with the the youngster. So I got him to do his pre-match wee and thought I was good to go. Anyway, so we get there, we get into our seats. Mistake number one, I'd forgotten that away games, everyone just stands up particularly unfriendly. It's all rules out the window. So I had to sort of hold him up for, for most of the game. But then 20 minutes in, he turns to me with the words, no dad wants to hear on an away day with a young kid and says, Daddy, I need a poo. Oh, no. And I was like, oh, <laughs> man. I was like, you've got to be able to, like, please, are you sure? Are you sure? I need a poo, I need a poo. I was trying to put him off. And then he's like, Daddy, 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 I've got to go, I've got to go. And I'm not going to try and explain the experience, but safe to say the toilet didn't have a toilet seat on it and it was me trying to kind of hold him over it and just a horrendous stroke, brilliant experience. <laughs> <laughs> And we saw. I've I've got to say, I definitely think it's around. John McGinn scored an absolute worldie that day. He scored such a good goal right down in front of us. And my little lad learned the John McGinn song that day.
1: Joel Grove, Charlton fellow. Have you got anything to say about this outrageous slur about the away end at Charlton?
2: Uh, I've been to the away end once. Um,
1: When we won League One and uh, the only tickets you could get were in the away
2: end. Uh, and I couldn't believe how bad the facilities were. I've
1: been going for about 20 years. Just is, had just had no idea how bad it was. In the I'm not end.
2: wrong, am I? It's completely different it's shocking, the rest of the yeah. stadium. Like, yeah. The rest of the stadium is very nice. I, I honestly thought Charlton, lovely family club. I've been there before. It's a nice nice stadium. And I mean, I, I really enjoyed myself. But yeah, I was shocked at how different the away, away ended. Yeah,
1: a disgrace on the proud name of Jimmy Seed. What about the next category, which is documentaries? And I think we've all gone for our best ever documentaries. We'll start with you, Mina. Yours is not a well-known choice. What do you like about it?
0: So mine is the um, football's greatest international teams, Brazil, 1982. It's really short. It's 25 minutes. But I think it was like last week we were talking about the best ever World Cup and I nominated 86. I'm one of those old people that's like, oh, in my day, football was so much better. <laughs> so, Your um, day being about like...
1: four years before you were born, in this case.
0: <laughs> Basically, <laughs> most of the time. It's like, you know, I wasn't even alive or too young to experience any of it. But this particular World Cup had so many consequences in the, things, in the sense that it changed football for many people. Um I don't know, maybe you could say Tele Santana, who was the coach of Brazil at the time, um, was the last real romantic coach of that team, or Dogo Bonito. It was just a fantastic World Cup because, you know, the the clash of ideologies between the big match that was Brazil and Italy. um, And in many ways, the documentary really captured the essence, really captured the reasons why I have the philosophies of football that I have now and that are so ingrained in me. And I also just like it, it. It just it, it's amazing that you have Zico on there talking. So you have different you know players giving their opinions on all of it about the the journalist who talked about how Spain was mourning the the fact that they lost to to the Italian national team. And I just thought the opening sentences, which I wanted to read to, because it's amazing. And it said um, on the fifth of July in nineteen eighty two, many felt the beautiful game died where Brazil's finest team in the post-Pelé era succumbed to eventual Champions Italy, where pragmatism overcame fantasy. The world wept for Brazil's fallen heroes and a style that dominated world football for over a quarter of a century. And I just feel like there's so much in that that's so true. It's almost like one of the reasons why I have certain beliefs now, one of the reasons why I'm not that keen on sort of the Pep Guardiola style of football is because Tele Santana broke my heart. That was an amazing team. And it was almost like they lacked humility. They wanted to attack so much at times that they just forgot about defending. And they had a great defense. And, and you saw this Italian side that was boring to watch, that had three draws, but that was so disciplined, that was so desperate. And there were all these social consequences to everything as well, because the Brazilian political scene was huge, and it was all changing. And, um, and it was dominating the headlines meanwhile in italy you know once again they were they had their pride to look after because there was another scandal in italian football they needed to prove themselves but they were really struggling and it was just like no matter how beautiful football is at the end of the day balance always su- succeeds and that was what it was it was pragmatic football and i thought that that documentary really showed you everything the highs the lows what it meant to both nations what it meant on a wider scale Um, I thought it was really well written. I thought the interviews were amazing. And I just love that at the end, um, (laughs) you've got the Brazilian saying, well, at the end of the day, it was a great generation. It was Serginia. And he was saying, but we lost. And he says so while wearing a Juventus cap with the logo on the side. (laughs) I just thought that that was fantastic. And yeah, so for me, it was just one of those, like, you know, there's a lot of these ones that are just overly hyped or you know, when you get all these documentaries like the Juventus one or the Manchester City one that just go so far to tell you that their clubs are amazing and that people are amazing. But this was just like, oh, this meant so much more than just a football club that won or a, a national team that won. This was the death of a style of football. This was the. The rise of another and, and it was just, I thought it was fantastic.
1: Mine was quite short as well, and it's um Club for a Fiverr, which hmm. is the nineteen ninety-five documentary about Leighton Orient. Um, which is notorious for the manager John Sitton, who is uh, the sweariest man of all time, <laughs> who um, he, he kind of he's been promoted slightly above his station, and this documentary is basically just watching him unravel. At one point, he sacks a club legend at half-time because he doesn't think he's playing well, and then he offers out two of the other players for a fight, and he infamously says, uh, "You can team up if you want, and you can bring your bad word dinner because you'll need it." Um, and, and it's it's this very very funny uh, kind of. Um, portrait of someone having a really bad time, but it's actually a beautiful piece of work. It's very economically told because it's all done on a a very small budget. It was actually a film project for someone's university course, Um, so there's a real elegance in how they handle not being able to show any of the games. You just see these crazed team talks uh, of getting everyone up for uh, the latest games, uh, whichever game is taking place. And then the screen cuts to black and just flashes up the half time score, uh, which is Brentford 3, Leighton Orient nil. Um, <laughs> it's just miles away from the polish you get with most documentaries now, but all the better for it and also available to watch online. Uh, what have you nominated for this one, Matt?
2: I've got um, Graham Taylor, The Impossible Job, which I kind of... It's a similar style, actually, to the Leighton Orient one, even though the the access is incredible, but actually it's very kind of simply shot. Um, And you only see bits and bobs of games. It's all about, you know, Taylor's interaction with the press, Taylor's interaction with the players. Actually, it doesn't bother showing much football. It just has the camera on him on the bench a lot of the time just seeing this, this man basically sort of unravel as he's as the, as the England manager. I love Graham Taylor, by the way. I've got a very kind of special place in my heart for Graham Taylor. But th- this was filmed over the, um, basically, pretty much the two years where he was trying to qualify for the World Cup 94, which England obviously eventually failed to. Um, and it comes out with just some of the greatest catchphrases ever that have just stuck with Taylor and within football. I mean, we've got... Hitler's Carlton demand it. Can we not knock it? Do I not like that? What sort of thing is happening here? And, <laughs> and, and, then, and then the brilliant one is that that, that Holland game where um, Kuman should have been sent off for fouling David Platt, and he uh, he eventually bangs in from a, a free kick uh, the, the goal that that starts to unravel England's whole hopes and uh, Taylor. Taylor walks up to the, the linesman. Uh, sorry, the fourth official. No, the linesman. Sorry, he's, he's berating the fourth official the whole game, and then he walks up to the linesman and says, um, "Just, just tell your colleague the referees just got me the sack." And I mean, it's incredible. He sat on the bench at times, talking about how the press are going to portray things while he's while the game's going on. He, he references like the Sun and the Mirror while games are going on. It's it's unbel- the, the access that was given for an England manager was just unbelievable. But then there's also there's another side of it because you tend to remember it as as Taylor kind of unraveling in these crazy catchwords and Phil Neal being just just saying yes, boss, the whole time in a completely useless assistant. But then there's a moment in it which for me just absolutely sums up what a wonderful human being Graham Taylor was. It was a game, I think it was it might have been San Marino. Um, where John Barnes is getting awful stick off the England crowd. The commentator saying, I've never heard an England player get this kind of of grief from an England crowd. And Taylor is sat in... It's the old Wembley where he, he was a lot closer to the fans. And Taylor's sat in the dugout and he hears a fan say something racist about John Barnes. And he actually turns to him during the game and says, you're talking about another human being there, so just watch your language, son. And then and then continues to manage the the game. It's unbelievable. If if yet anyone hasn't seen it, you can still find it on YouTube. Um, and it is the greatest greatest documentary ever.
3: What have you got, Jayjay? What have I gone for? Well, I, I was going to go predictably for something with Aberdeen. There's a few good documentaries on uh, like the Knights in Gothenburg, and there's one called Team of the Decade about the Alex Ferguson teams from the 1980s, But that's basically just a season review, isn't it? And that doesn't count for a documentary, as far as I understood. The game, Uh, so the only thing I can think of really (laughs) was the all or nothing Man City uh, documentary, (laughs) which I know we've talked about already. I don't see why people don't like it so much. Like it's just interesting to see behind the scenes footage. I don't really enjoy these documentaries that much behind the scenes because even if you think it's real, whatever, it's still being put together, cut as a documentary, which is still a form of entertainment. So nothing is real. And if you uh, consider the idea that like people saying, "Well, it's fake. It's all performance," but isn't everything a performance on camera? So, if you put a camera anywhere, then by definition, uh, like you're not capturing what was really there because people will act in a certain way. If you put a camera in front of someone, then they can't pretend it's not there. And, uh, if you, like, Man City players are always on camera, whether it's they're on TV or in training being watched or their pals with their uh, Instagram cameras on their phone yeah, and their phones, stuff is- like that.
0: This is why I don't like ones that are focused like there There's one on Netflix on Juventus as well. I think it was the first one at the time. And it's just like, it's almost like they're acting at this point. Like, I feel like when it's, it, I, I totally see where you're coming from. It's always a performance. But that's why I much prefer documentary is when it's like looking back at something and it's like people's opinions and then clips you know like it's it's kind of a little bit like why Senna was so good you know watching sure. Oh, that sure
2: but amazing.
3: then the whole point of it is I like yeah. the like you see in the behind the scenes stuff like you see where they're training and you get to see what the coaching looks like that sort of stuff I find interesting to watch whereas like I just don't care about the document I like documentaries like I prefer the reviews that's why I, the things like the Aberdeen team of the 80s because you see clips of them training on the beach and then it cuts to them you know beating Bayern Munich in the, the Cup Winners Cup but you've got like with this Man City thing you see behind the scenes stuff but yes of course it's uh, dramatised, it's it's entertainment, it's been cut in a way so there's theres three acts in every single episode and there's a series arc so everything is done there to be entertainment but that, you know, football's not got that, that's why you can't go to a game and pay 80 quid for a ticket and then guarantee it's going to be great because it's just random, whereas did, a documentary you... they've got to make it hit certain beats
2: Did you, did you like um, or do you like Sunderland Until I Die?
3: I think it's fine. But again, the whole point of it is you'll find characters who are your villains, who are your heroes. You'll find arcs, like so individual story arcs for individual people. Then you find the conflict, and the conflict is what creates the drama, which is what makes people watch it. So even if there was nothing happening, you'd be able to make it much better.
2: I've always found with these, do- the things that always attract me to the documentaries and why the late and or in one Taylor and why I really like Sunderland Until I Die as well is, is just seeing some of the workings that you can't actually believe happen. You'd, you'd just imagine it had to be more professional than that. And obviously, I just found with the, the all or nothing, there was none of that. And Sunderland Till I Die, I mean, the new series, I'm not giving away any spoilers here, but the scene when they sign Will Grigg and the decision-making that goes on on the January transfer window deadline day to sign Will Grigg is astonishingly unprofessional <laughs> from the people in charge at, at Sunderland. And that—that that, that in, is what I find fascinating and documentary so I think you and I probably take very different things out of these documentaries which is interesting in itself.
0: Go beyond the headlines with the Telegraph's daily coronavirus podcast a roundup of the latest news on the pandemic from our leading journalists with analysis on the impact on health business and travel every weekday evening. Search coronavirus the latest on your podcast app.
1: Shall we quickly move on to the final subject which is a slightly throwaway topic, let's be honest. Footballer's hair. And my nomination for this is the best footballer's hair ever. And I want to talk about Marcus Alonso, whose hair <laughs> is a, a work of art. He looks like Morton Harkett of Aha ha in about 1986. You, you just don't see hair that beautiful anymore. He's a wonderfully... Put, he's got a wonderfully put-together head of hair. I, I just don't think it gets enough love. It's, it's, it flies under the radar slightly, his haircut, but I, I'm in love with it.
0: How can haircuts get this much love?
1: I, I, I don't know what it is, Mina. I think it's because I really like our hair. <laughs>
0: I just <laughs> well,
2: enjoy,
1: <laughs> enjoy seeing that represented in a football pitch in 2020.
2: I saw this topic come up and assumed it's just because everyone's a bit worried about how their hair's going to turn out after all of this, because there's a lot of yes. chat about how people are going to cope with their hair. I agree yeah, on Marcus Alonso. I agree on Marcus Alonso. I think he's got a wonderful, wonderful head of hair. It's so thick. Yeah, it's it's the thickest hair. It's lovely hair. I'm, I'm with. What's your I'm, nomination, I'm, though, Matt? It's not my nomination, but I, I, when I saw that you were nominating that, I, I nodded. I nodded and thought that's a great pick, um, and kind of wished I'd picked it. I sort of went. I, I went another way. It's not necessarily my favorite hair, but it, I'm, I'm doing it for good, not bad. It's, the first time I was only really aware of a footballer's haircut that entered my psyche was Tony Daly um, who he, he sort of it's very hard to explain his hair. I mean it was dreadlocked most of the time, but he would just have this kind of crazy <laughs> crazy thatch of it just plonked on the top of his head with not a lot round it and he would do various things with it going in all different directions and stuff. And to be honest, you look back at it now and it doesn't actually you know, the things people do with their hair, it doesn't actually look that that remarkable now. But at the time, everybody used to talk about Tony Daly's hair. Um it was a thing. And it was the first time I ever took notice of anyone's haircut. And it added to him because he was he was an incredibly exciting and frustrating player at the same time. And he was at the time, again, he probably wouldn't be considered that fast now, but he was he looked super fast back then. Um, watching him live it always felt like if the whole end wasn't there would just continue running you know straight out through Aston or something um, and the hair the hair made it it was all part of it it was all part of this flamboyant sort of guy and uh, yeah it's just, just the first time I'd ever really be thought about a footballer's hair, so, that, so that's Com- why. I
1: completely agree with you about that, Matt, because I remember it was almost a scandal, Tony Daly's hair. It was this byword for absolute insanity. And yeah. I look back at the pictures, I was like, actually, this just wouldn't stick out at all now. It looks incredibly no,
2: uh, he, He's basically incredibly got normal. dreads, and it's just in a few different angles. And, yeah, it, it wouldn't, it's nothing on what you know, the Pogpas of this world and stuff have done with their hair. And, you know, other people who I think one of them is going to come up from a, a nomination... But you're right, at the yeah. time, it was a massive deal. It was like, this guy's mad. Look at his hair.
3: <laughs> it was a simpler time. What have you got, JJ?
2: I'm surprised no one had
3: Carlos Valderrama. He, I, well, he, he I think because my, it was so
0: obvious. Yeah, I know, exactly.
2: my second choice.
3: Because that's what I thought the whole point of the thing was. Like, oh, wasn't that wacky funny here? And that's what you made all your players look like in Pro Evo when you could build your own of character. Yeah, or make it pink now. But yeah, I went for David Beckham because... I mean, he sort of set the uh, agenda of haircuts being linked to footballers. I thought first in the nineties you had Pretty Boy Spice Girl Beckham in the nineties, the and then you had uh, I'm a captain now, skinhead, <laughs> and then you had uh, what, like his sort of normalish haircut when he was at PSG and all all the rest. Nothing really exciting to say about should,
2: it. Everyone should have a favourite and a, a, a least favourite David Beckham haircut. Yeah, the cornrows is surely the low point. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes, yeah. that one should not I do denied. like the
0: skinhead one though. but I'm partial to a baldy.
2: I liked the Mohican.
0: Oh, that was quite good.
2: I quite like the... There was a, there was an awful one. There was an awful one where he dyed it really, really bleach blonde. And it was very kind of 90s, all in different angles, very, very bleach blonde. And it's not aged well at all. It looks terrible.
1: Yeah, yeah. Not, nor, has, uh, nor has my... Uh, version of that in 1999 as well it's uh if, if if anyone ever visits my parents house and sees the picture of me with peroxide blonde hair when i was 14 uh, it's hours of fun mina complete the lineup please
0: it has to be ronaldo in 2002 with that blob of hair Almost looks like a vajazzle. I don't even know how to... Bikini <laughs> wax. I just, oh, my goodness. I, I, I just, it's just so, like, horrible to explain it like that. But I don't i don't even know what he was thinking, to have that lasered little piece of hair at the top of his head. He, at the time, admitted that it was a bad haircut after a while when he did all these interviews, and said that he did it so that it would take away focus from the fact that he had injured his leg and um, couldn't train and, and wanted to give someone and, and the people... And journalists something to talk about, so that he could concentrate on his training and get back to being sort of the Ronaldo that can win the World Cup, which he did, obviously. Um, but that haircut—it was like he's not the world's most beautiful footballer. And I just feel like there are things that you can do to make yourself look better. And he was like he was actively trying to make himself look bad.
2: Did Th- the job there? Good choice as well. Has, has anyone seen the viral video of this that's, that's gone round? Because as we're talking about, everyone's worrying about their hair, and there's. There's a video that's that's doing the rounds of this young lad who says to his dad, "Like, can you cut my hair?" They've got the clippers because he can't go to the hairdressers at the moment, and he says to his dad, "I want it like Ronaldo." And,
0: and, he, and then, what, he does that haircut. <laughs>
2: and the video comes back and it's not Cristiano Ronaldo he's got he's got that haircut and the kids in tears
0: oh that's so mean <laughs> that's like an a friend's de- episode you know
2: <laughs> it's definitely worth a watch but it's a it very, very relevant shout Mina. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's it all for this week. You can contact me on Twitter if you'd like to. Before next week's episode, it's at Tom with an H, Gibbs. We'll be with you on Tuesday next week. We need a full Easter break. We've been very, very busy sitting at home. Send us an email with that extra day if you'd like to. It's afcpodcast at Telegraph.co.uk. We'll read out the very best of what you send us. And we're very happy to receive suggestions of categories you'd like included. You can even name your best or worst of that category yourself if you like. We are sure to include whatever you sent to us. Don't forget to have a look for the podcast and subscribe to it. It's Telegraph Audio Football Club. Just look for that wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Joel Probe on the buttons. and thanks to you for your company. I'll talk to you again soon.